The biannual list of high-risk federal programs published last week by the Government Accountability Office is both promising and discouraging. It shows that more appropriations can help and also that money is not always the answer to improving programs. As we do every two years when the list comes out, we get executive analysis from the man who runs the GAO, Comptroller General Gene Dodaro. Mr. Dodaro, good to have you back. Always good to be with you, Tom. And I feel like you should be Dr. Dodaro. You're kind of like the kindly, knowledgeable, bedside doctor to federal agencies. You don't spare the truth, but you don't hit them over the head with it either. Well, it's important to be constructive, Tom. I mean, there's a lot of serious problems that need to be dealt with. You need to be clear and candid with people, but you need to be understanding and making sure that you're doing everything you can to try to help them improve their performance for the benefit of the American people. And let's talk about a couple of the items that did get removed this year, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation and the 2020 Census. I think those show kind of what I said at the beginning, is that sometimes a little bit more money helps from Congress, but sometimes it's just sheer managerial know-how that gets you through a situation. In the PBGC case, it definitely was the money appropriated from the Congress. The multi-employer pension part of that program was due to be insolvent in 2026. The latest estimates in Congress provided enough funding that, according to the current projections of PBGC, will extend that program through the 2050 time frame. And the single employer part of it has been getting better on its own. So that's been better management, as you point out. But the PBGC now rates the risk of insolvency for both programs to be extremely low for the next 15 years. So it doesn't solve the long-term problems that they have, but for now, we're going to take them off the list. And just because they're off the list, they're not out of sight. So we'll keep an eye on them going forward. Census clearly was a good management exercise. They've kept the cost down from growing exponentially as it had been with prior decennials. They implemented the first internet response option for people and using in some administrative records. They effectively dealt with the cybersecurity recommendations that we and the Department of Homeland Security had put forward. And so they'll continue to be challenged as we run up to the 2030 census. So we'll keep an eye on that as well. And if we need to add them back to the list. And of course, 16 areas, as you mentioned to Congress, have improved. And without running through the details of all the 16, what are the themes there for people to maybe not get off the list, but at least step closer to the doorway out of it? Actually, in a number of cases, there are two pivotal parts to get started on the path to coming off the high-risk list. One is sustained leadership commitment, and a number of them exhibited that. And this is particularly important, Tom, as there's changes in administration. If you recall, our last update was 2021, just as this administration was coming into office. So it's important. And many of these issues, as you know, have been on for a long time. So it's important that that commitment be sustained across administrations. Secondly, detailed action plans that really get to the root cause of this situation. And that is very important. We saw a number of meaningful efforts to come up with better action plans going forward. This is particularly true with the Veterans Administration. And so, you know, I was very pleased with both the leadership commitment and the action plans. And now it's a matter of following through and executing it is getting to the hard part. But unless you have those two prerequisites, you really don't make much progress. 
We're speaking with Gene Dodaro, Comptroller General and head of the Government Accountability Office. And let's talk for a moment about the two item, or three items that got added. Here again, Bureau of Prisons, there's a big money issue there, but also some managerial problems. The unemployment insurance fraud was really discouraging, and I know GAO has had several reports on that, as have some of the inspectors general that you kind of work in parallel with. And all of this fraud, as you pointed out, yes, the COVID response accelerated the fraud, maybe by an order of magnitude, but it was not an unknown problem before then. And then, of course, HHS response to public health emergencies, that kind of underlied many, many of the issues agencies have faced over the past couple of years. Absolutely. I'll start with that one first on the HHS area. We've seen over the last decade that they've struggled with providing adequate leadership and efforts to respond to various public health emergencies and to coordinate the federal response. There's been problems with clarity and roles and responsibilities among federal agencies with federal governments, state and local governments. There's been not effective communication, clear and consistent information to the public. There's been data collection issues that have made it more difficult to target the response rate. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, I added it to the list to keep it visible to the Congress and the public as the pandemic fades or emergency parts of it fade. You know, sometimes not enough attention is given to be in a better position next time. And I think we're a long way from being in a better position to deal with the next public health emergency. So that's important that we stay focused on that as a country. On the unemployment insurance area, you're exactly right. You know, we estimated that at the low end of fraud, at least $60 billion of fraud in the unemployment insurance program. We're working on a higher end estimate right now. But in addition to the fraud and improper payments issue, which you were right, it was there before, but it was magnified during the pandemic because of all the money and the new programs. But also, we found problems with timely delivery of benefits to eligible people, legitimate people. And there were some questions about equity based upon racial lines. And the program is, at the state level, antiquated IT systems that are not really meant to serve the modern federal workforce. And, of course, the workforce has changed itself in the dynamic. So it needs broad-based transformation to deal with these range of issues. And then the Bureau of Prisons, we saw for a number of years, they were having some leadership challenges. They had six different directors in six different years. The current director, Colette Peters, is committed to addressing these problems. I've met with her. But their staffing challenges, their use of overtime has grown. They're understaffed. They can have issues in terms of safety, both for the inmates and for the staff. And then they have a big challenge in trying to prevent recidivism. Their last estimates are 45% of the inmate population were back in prison after a few years of being released. And so there's a number of programs, including the First Step Act, to try to get them to be uh, you know, more successful in preventing that and help inmates make successful transitions back into society. And on the BOP issue, I have spoken to your director on that issue, Greta Goodwin. And one of the questions I asked her, and this gets almost to the philosophical level, is that Yes, some of the people incarcerated by the Bureau of Prisons from some easy camp for elderly, you know, white-collar prisoners all the way to the Supermax at Florence, Colorado. Yes, they are some of the worst members of society, but when they become incarcerated, they also become among the most vulnerable. Kind of an irony there. And 
in some ways it's a reflection of the entire government and maybe society as to how those people get treated, given that incarceration itself is pretty bad punishment. They should not suffer physical abuse, etc., the things that happen under incarceration beyond the fact of incarceration, and nor should the people that care for them have to be in danger. Absolutely. And that's one of the issues that I decided to put them on a higher list for. You know, there's health care issues because there's aging in the inmate population as well. And there's issues of safety, you know, so there's medical care. There's issues helping people recover from drug abuse. There's uh, all sorts of different challenges, and they are vulnerable. And the goal is to rehabilitate people to be better members of society when they're released from their punishment. And so this is a big challenge the Bureau of Prisons has. I mean, it's a tough issue dealing with these issues and things that have built up over time with these individuals. So it's very appropriate. It's our goal. And we want to make sure that we try to help them be in the best position possible to keep their staff and their inmates safe and also to meet their rehabilitation goals. My guest is Comptroller General Gene Dodaro, and I want to talk about the Defense Department. Some of the problems there have been on the high-risk list, I think, since it was inaugurated back in 1990, including acquisition of weapons programs and so on, and there's never been a shortage of efforts to try to address that. But I wondered if you felt that the Ukraine situation and the granting of all of this equipment and ammunition that has been flowing to Ukraine has brought those problems into sharper relief. Well, I think that the question of replenishing the supplies that we've been providing to the Ukraine will be an issue that we're going to be looking at, Tom. We have a separate mandate from Congress to provide oversight over the agency's provision of assistance to the Ukraine, whether it's military assistance, humanitarian assistance, etc. So we'll be looking at those issues. But as you point out, a number of issues have been longstanding at the department. And so they need to be addressed, you know, along with uh, repercussions from providing the assistance uh, to the Ukraine. So we'll be keeping an eye on both, you know, whether they're getting to the root cause of some of these problems and executing good action plans. I've been pleased with the commitment of the department and their cooperation. And uh, I've had discussions about that with their leadership. And looking forward to some, hopefully, some additional progress of them. As you recall, maybe last time we met, you know, we've taken a couple of DOD areas off the high risk list. So I was pleased with their progress before in the supply chain management and the infrastructure areas. So they're working on these other issues. Some of them are very difficult: the weapon systems acquisition in the financial management area in particular. So we'll see how things go going forward. Uh, But we'll be keeping an eye on the Ukraine situation as well. Because there have been a couple of high-level commissions. One was called the Section 809 Commission, and it had to do with the name of the section that authorized it in the NDAA a few years back, and they were looking at acquisition issues. And then there's another commission that is just turning in reports on PPBE, what they call program budget execution, that whole process, which dates back many, many years, decades, really. And so it seems like if they could act on what is the recommendations before them from their own commissions and their own study groups, they could make a lot of progress. You're exactly right. I think there are two fundamental tensions that occur within DOD. One is you have large, complex problems that need discipline systems management, acquisition management approaches, 
and to mature technologies before you put them into production, for example, and to have good business cases. The other tension, though, is you have this enormous pressure to meet and stay with the competition from adversarial nations. And that pressure ultimately drives some decisions to move forward faster than discipline management practices would take you in that area. And so those two tensions always create challenges within the department. And so better management practices can help. They can make better decisions early on. But this competition from near-peer countries is not to be underestimated as a force guiding their decision-making. Yeah, everywhere you look, there are stimuli that have brought to light some of these problems, whether it was COVID and HHS and Ukraine now and competition for DOD. In the U.S. financial regulatory system, modernization, that was one of the items that was cited. And here we had Silicon Valley Bank, which is really still unfolding in many ways, and there's a lot of controversy over the response by the FDIC to it, whether it was the best deal for taxpayers. And then the whole Bitcoin FTX deal kind of sucked in a lot of banking with it. And so what's your sense of how that can make some progress? Again, a very old issue. Yeah, no, that's brought the uh, financial modernization area into, uh, you know, more vivid relief now that uh, since the uh, time we put it on during the global financial crisis back in 2009, And we're looking now at the Silicon Valley bank situation and the signature bank situation. We'll have our first report out at the end of this week in those areas. And we have a statutory obligation. If regulators make a systemic risk determination to go in and look at that and advise Congress what happened there. We also, Tom, gain additional responsibilities to audit the Federal Reserve Emergency Lending Facilities during the global financial crisis. We needed that authority. Congress responded to my request positively there in order to audit the troubled asset relief program there because the Federal Reserve was backing up some of Treasury's activities. And then we've received a bipartisan request from the Congress to look at what happened in Silicon Valley and Signature Bank. So we'll be looking at it. And we've also received another request to look more broadly at the bank examination and supervision process. And all that will bring us back into looking and focusing in on the high-risk area of financial modernization. We're speaking with Gene Dodaro, Comptroller General and head of the Government Accountability Office. And in some sense, GAO has been saying the entire government enterprise is a high-risk unto itself because of the non-sustainability of the fiscal situation. That's a little separate study than the high-risk list. But do you worry that, you know, every time there's a trillion-dollar response to something and they're talking about, you know, there's new trillion-dollar programs being contemplated, who knows whether they'll pass politically, but does that cause you pause when you think that the debts are mounting and we're not getting closer to some sort of sustainable fiscal path, even though it might happen program by program individually? The overall fiscal health of the federal government is a concern. You know, I've regularly for the last uh, six years issued an annual report on the fiscal health of the federal government and come to the conclusion that it's on a long-term unsustainable fiscal path. There's a structural issue there in terms of imbalance between revenues and expenditures that was there before the global financial crisis, the Great Recession, and now the pandemic. Those extraordinary events have added to the debt and to this fundamental problem, which is largely being driven by demographics as our society is aging and rising health care costs. 
and then soon to be rivaled by the increase in interest costs to service our debt. So our latest report, Tom, will be out next month. And in those reports, I've called for a plan to put the federal government a roadmap, if you will, on a path to long-term sustainability. But we need to have some goals, guidelines as how much debt do we want to have as a percent of gross domestic product, for example, and how would we get there to constrain those things while still allowing ourselves to be responsive to global and domestic emergencies. I've also called for changes in how we deal with the debt ceiling. The way we do it right now is really not an optimal approach, and it could lead to extreme difficulties, and I'm you know, concerned about that. I have been, and I hope that once we get through this most recent episode that we can get to a more rational way of setting our debt at the time we make appropriation decisions and not have it bifurcated and create potential turmoil in the markets. And I wanted to ask you, too, on that regard, you are about to reach your 50th anniversary in June of serving in the federal government. That is pretty rare, a 50-year career. You hear a lot about a lot of 30-year careers and 40-year careers, and yet you have managed not to become a Jeremiah when it comes to some of these issues. But as I said at the outset, more of a kindly bedside doctor who nevertheless has to give bad news. What keeps your equanimity in all of this when the problems just go on for generations and seem, in some cases, to be accelerating? Tom, I joined the federal government because I wanted to provide public service. I didn't want to become somebody to just complain about government and not get in the game and to be able to make good, positive outcomes. You know, when we get together, we talk a lot about the high risk list and the problems, but GAO generates tremendous benefits for the federal government. I mean, we achieve a lot of improvements. The last five years, for example, we've got tens of billions of dollars in financial savings, $145 back for every dollar invested in GAO. The high-risk program, for example, over the last 17 years has saved $675 billion. I've talked to you before about the overlap, duplication, fragmentation. That's over a trillion dollars in savings. So, there is a lot of job satisfaction with improvements that are made in the government that comes with this job. But our job largely is to keep the country and Congress focused on challenges and emerging issues. And so, therefore, we spend a lot of time on this. But I have three children, seven grandchildren, and eighth on the way. I want to make the country better and leave it better than from my uh, stint in, in government. And so that keeps me motivated, plus working with the tremendous people over here at GAO that we have, and one of the best talented, most dedicated workforces in the world. So I'm happy, Tom. I'm uh, you know, looking forward to the rest of my term here at GAO and uh, to continue to help our country. And in that regard, yes, you actually got applause from one of the committees you were testifying for, I think it was the Senate, that uh, they don't applaud too many witnesses, but citing GAO for its repeated being the best mid-sized agency to work for. And we should remind people that you don't have to do the FEV survey as a congressional agency, but you do it voluntarily. No, I think it's important to continue to hold ourselves to the same standards that we hold others to when we audit people. So we try to implement leading practices at GAO. And it's important that we have our employees engaged and try to be the best uh, workplace that we could be because better motivated people produce better results, and then we have a better chance of achieving our mission in the most effective and efficient manner. 
Gene Dodaro is Comptroller General and head of the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, it's always a pleasure, Tom. Best wishes to you. And we'll post this interview along with links to the High Risk List Report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Keep the Federal Drive high on your personal list. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. Now, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, 
influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbored no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness 
toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.